Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. The Times calls this week's guest fearless and funny, riotous and rebellious, maverick and mischievous. Not words you expect to hear associated with a politician. They're talking, of course, about Jess Phillips, the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley and author of the book Truth to Power, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS. Matt Stadlin caught up with her a couple of weeks ago to hear her thoughts on our strange and divided times. Hello and Welcome. Thank you for joining us at this How To Academy virtual event on a Friday evening. I am delighted that it's Friday and delighted that I'm sort of at work, although it doesn't really feel work, because I get to interview Jess Phillips and it is such a delight. And I'll tell you why it's a particular delight. I actually interviewed her for sort of a dry run just the other day, and that was the first time I'd ever interviewed her. And if you're an interviewer by trade, as I sort of am, you kind of want to interview the people who are most exciting and the most interesting in public life. Jess is definitely one of those people. I'm, I'm Matt Stadler. I'm a broadcaster, former LBC presenter, former BBC presenter, former Telegraph columnist, although not a political columnist. Jess will be delighted and relieved to hear. And Jess is, well, you all know who Jess is. She's an MP. She's been the MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015. And since just this year, she's been serving in the Shadow Cabinet, not full time, for Sakir Starmer in the vital role of Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. Also, she's a writer, she's an, an author, and she has written this brilliant book called truth to power how to call time and i'm going to send you swear here how to call time on bullshit speak up and make a difference jess it's really good to have you with us having me it's my pleasure only you i think perhaps only you of all of the, the 650 mps or however many there are these days would manage to get a semi swear word into the title of your book is it semi i'm not even sure that it's semi i think it's full swear shit like my mum would have hit me for saying shit although she had a foul mouth which is where i get it from um but uh, yeah well you know it, it is things are shit aren't they people feel like things are shit and I tried to think of other ways of saying it but you know I was raised by an English teacher and I think that you know quick language that communicates the point well is the most important I'm, I'm trying to remember whether I would have had to press the dump button for the BS word in the LBC studio probably marginally not overnight but the S word which you just uttered <laughs> definitely would have done so I'm apologising to everybody just in case anything Jess says have you ever sworn in the chamber? Um, I have just nearly gone to... I mean, I've sworn in the chamber like a million times, but not like when I was actually speaking. I swear in the chamber all the time. And actually, if you listen to the feed of most days, people are swearing all the time because you're like, I mean, can imagine what you're saying when people are saying things that you just don't agree with. Um, but I've gone to swear and then stopped myself and said, oh my gosh, I nearly swore then. I have sworn really, really, really graphically and badly in a debate once though. 
but it was and my children love this fact and repeat it whenever anyone asks them a question about politics is you're allowed to swear if you're quoting somebody so I was I was quoting I mean it wasn't just swearing it was horrible graphic nasty stuff um, I was quoting a site where men rate the prostitutes that they have slept with and I read a, a thing out and uh, the Ian Paisley Jr. was chairing the committee that the, the debate was on and he said he was just like I'm going to have to stop you know this is this is too much and uh, so t- too much for Ian Paisley Jr. What would happen Jess if you if you swear when you're not on your feet in the comments? Totally fine nobody I mean occasionally if the speaker heard you and if you were being really aggressive or if you'd just been like uh, like the speaker wouldn't but if he heard you if you shouted it you'd probably be reprimanded but only like telling you off and then you'd stand up and say oh, I apologise that was unparliamentary but nothing really happens I suppose you could if you were to swear like in when you were on your feet you can be doctor day's pay so you're kicked out of the chamber and you're docked a pay until the next parliamentary day and I think it was Paul Flynn once got thrown out of the chamber but it was on the last day before the six week recess so he didn't get paid for six weeks so don't do it on that day say only nice things on that day definitely not quite worth paying before, before then I asked you to spell out why you wrote this book mm-hmm. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions first of all just following on from what you've you've said and how you've already been but you and David Lammy and I know David pretty well and I probably consider myself a mate of his these days lovely guy don't always agree with everything he says and sometimes he can be extraordinarily outspoken mm-hmm. and, and he, sat, I mean, he probably has as many trolls as you do I mean or even more trolls than I do and by the way I saw some of the replies because you tweeted about this event and every single reply to you was mean and, and then yeah. when I tweeted about it quite a few of them were mean as well I mean it's such a weird world and we'll talk about social media and the role it plays in how, how you speak truth um, mm. a, a little later on but something that struck me when David became the Shadow Justice Secretary and, and you as the, the, the Shadow Minister for, for Safeguarding and, and the Domestic Violence do you feel like you do have to rein it in a little bit more than when you were a mouthy backbencher? I mean when I'm talking to you now I don't feel like I would be any more careful about the things that I say um, than I would have been before and in you know I do you know quite a lot of book events and things and inevitably it's probably quite a good job that all of them got cancelled this summer because I inevitably would have ended up in the papers having said some terrible gaffe but I don't feel on a day-to-day that I have to rein it in however the the way that we used to operate when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party where we were essentially all just freestyling all the time like you know the studios and the TV studios and newspapers would ring you up and you'd just give a comment if you had one and you you know they'd ring you up and say can you come on the Today programme tomorrow and you'd be like yeah all right." like that is gone like you know that's like which is a good thing that it's sort of better organised better sort of message discipline around that but no I think that when they gave me and David Lammy the job they did it in the full awareness that we're quite difficult to control and that that was probably a good thing there was an upside to that I've never been told off yet. Let's see if we can make it happen tonight. <laughs> You've got a bit of power now because, of course, power rests in government. And you have to 
the whole one of the big criticisms of Corbynism, one of the many, was that it was not didn't seem likely to get Labour into power. And if you don't get into power, you can't do nearly as much. However, you still can do some stuff. Yeah. And you're an elected representative, you're an MP, and you're also in the Shadow Cabinet as we're discussing. Do you feel like you have some power? I do feel like I have some power, but it's funny where my power derives from you, actually. My power derives from the fact that I'm a little bit famous and that I am a bit mousy. Um, and I'm, and like David, I could just say anything crazy. Like, you know, so the normal rules might not apply. So if you have a conversation with me uh, in Parliament and I haven't liked what you've said, I, I'm, I wouldn't be averse to saying that in public. Like, well, you know, actually this person said this to me. or And that, I think, makes people feel a little bit nervous. And also because of the platform that I have around things like domestic abuse, being considered to be a genuine expert across the house. It is very, very difficult for the government when they put out a policy about that thing that I don't agree with because it immediately discredits them in the eyes of the public because they believe me to be an expert. And so that is where the power comes from. But you can definitely change things. I feel much less powerful at the moment than I did when we had a hung parliament. That felt very, very, very powerful because your vote genuinely mattered as much as the prime minister's, whichever one it was during whichever period of total stasis that we've recently had that felt very powerful and you, you felt like turning up for that like you know I will trek through the snow to get to a, a, a minor vote because we could win it it feels a tiny bit less emboldened parliament for lots of reasons covid the massive majority etc feels a lot less uh, powerful and emboldened at the moment but yeah no I, I i do still i feel i do feel powerful and you are powerful as an individual as well like a woman rang me today who'd had an incidence of sexual harassment by her university tutor to her and she'd gone through the process done everything right and found the outcome wanting and then when she tried to complain about that she sort of just has been ignored they won't ignore me when i ring them on monday if an old lady's boiler is broken the council might ignore her for a couple of days but they, they won't ignore me so there is a sort of innate power just in having the word mp but also there's an innate power in the fear that i'll write on twitter many more details about that story of sexual harassment than i just told you you won't you won't know this because i haven't ever said this to you before but i felt your power at times under the corbyn leadership and I I don't want to get into the Corbyn stuff and uh, mm-hmm. he's not here to defend himself on this, that and the other, but there was a, a lot of fear amongst some Jewish communities in this country recently that they weren't being heard and worse. And I'm a middle-class, white, middle-aged, almost, well, I am officially middle-aged bloke, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not, not I'm not used to being the underdog and I'm big enough and strong enough to look after myself. And yet, I felt your power at times during those years because you stood up for Jews. And even though I'm very happy to stand up for for fellow Jews or half Jews or whatever and can look after myself as I say hearing you say that from a non-Jewish background as far as I know yeah no no not Jewish at all yeah it felt I have to say it felt good and therefore I felt your power so if I'm feeling your power I can only imagine what people who are the victims of of, of domestic abuse and and violence and and homophobia and sexism must feel yeah you know then that is essentially what keeps you going is that feeling so for all the horrible things that get said 
about me. You know, every single day, people will get in touch with me and be grateful for my voice and say things like, you know, you said you said the thing I always wanted to say, but you get to be in the room and say it. Thank you so much for representing me. Not just my constituents, but today on the phone with this young woman, I said, I just want you to know that you've already done what more than most people do and you're incredibly brave and well done for stepping forward. And she said, oh my God, no one's ever said that this was a good, this was a good idea, that, that it was the right thing that I did. Thank you so much. That means a huge amount to me. And there is something really delightful in having my position that you can just say something to somebody and by virtue of your platform or your the way you've behaved or, or even just your title, they will believe it where they won't, wouldn't believe it off somebody else. And when people are in a vulnerable situation, whether that was Jewish people who found the Labour Party abhorrent, whether that's victims of domestic violence who just constantly feel like the system doesn't hear them, like sometimes they need somebody like me just to say, you know, you're doing a good job and, and they can hear it where as if their wife or partner or mum or dad or anybody said it to them, they can't hear it. And that authority is really powerful and it can be very, very, very easily manipulated for wrong. So, so let's speak a little bit about the book because the book is much more about how the rest of us can, can speak truth to power than how someone who has a, a fair amount of power such as yourself does on a, on a daily basis. So what, what encouraged you to write the book? And, and can you give us very briefly your sort of blueprint for how we should do it? Okay, so what encouraged me is that every single day somebody would write to me and say, I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in feminism. I'm interested in animal rights. I want to do something about it, but I don't know what to do. And with the greatest respect to people who email me every day, not including my the thousand constituency emails I receive every day, I, I just don't have the time to mentor the entire country when they're feeling a little bit emboldened politically and want to know how to get involved. So I thought, look, you know, there is obviously an appetite in the country at the moment for getting up and feeling heard, and not just the country, the world, and trying to do something good. And actually, we've started to really put on pedestals the kind of people who speak up, like the way that AOC is considered in America, or um, Greta Thunberg. There is this move to sort of look up to and want to be like uh, the kind of people who speak up and say what they think. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll write a book about that. I tend not to be able to write unless I'm cross. So I wrote really easy. I wrote that book in about seven weeks. And what I would say the blueprint for doing it is, it's very, very important that you understand what your motivation is. If your motivation, if an incident has happened in your life or you've noticed something crappy at work or on your street, is your motivation to raise your own profile, improve something for somebody else or to get revenge on somebody you don't like? And if your motivation isn't the second one, don't bother trying to change anything because it will ultimately be a lot of quite grunt work. There's a lot of boring things in it involved in changing the world. You never ever see the, the how many letters have to be stuffed, envelopes have to be stuffed and phone calls that have to be made. That never ever gets into the documentaries, the level of tedium of, of political campaigning. Um, and really assess your motivation because your motivation is the thing that will carry you through. Then I would say be ready for the pitfalls, be ready for the kind of the bad stuff that's going to happen to you think about you know the angles and I try in the book I try and lay out what the classic things are so if you complain about somebody at work expect your sickness record to be a thing that is going to be just 
discussed because they might not attack you on the thing that you're saying but they will find a way to silence your voice and diminish your power and so actually if you tell somebody that's going to happen before it happens when it happens it's much less disarming it's much more like ah I knew you were going to do this and I think that's really important to teach people so you know when when I tweeted at you when you retweeted it I thought you're going to get to see this now you're going to get to see what it's like to be me whereas I was totally armed for it because I know I know exactly what that is going to happen so be prepared for all the different the, the and, and, and think about what they will be the, the angles never ever do it on your own you won't succeed if you try and do anything on your own uh, and you'll be miserable and feels if you do it on your own there's the single greatest reason not to, to try and take action at work or you know in a big grand scale on your own is because if you don't have someone to sound out against who is an equal peer to you in the fight if you don't have that person you will think that you're wrong you will start to think that all the bad things and people telling you that you're moaning about nothing it will break through and you can't do it without other people and you need people to take stuff on be prepared for the risks and know before you try and change anything that it, it will and in the book some of the people who I interviewed it was about people who'd lost their lives taking the ultimate risk to try and change the world or certainly lots of people who'd lost their jobs lost their positions so think is the outcome worth the possible risks but also just really try and enjoy it because it is the greatest feeling ever you're not sending people out like lambs to the slaughter i mean you're encouraging in this book but as you just said there in your answer i mean you're realistic as well you're realistic about pitfalls you're realistic about how unpleasant it can be i mean torrent of abuse that you got absolutely appalling i I could identify with some of it not all of it i mean there was a day when i took a certain stance on lbc and on Twitter, I got something like 2,000 hate messages on Twitter in 24 hours. And, you know, even though it's virtual, it's, it's almost like being bullied at school again. So you, you have to be, I've changed my filters on Twitter as a start. So you have to be, you have to be robust. You have to be prepared, as you say. And the other, the other caveat, and you've, you've hinted at it here, is that power, as you put it in the book, is, is really interested in securing power. So looking at itself. Totally. It is the most, uh, the powerful people, powerful structures, and just power as it sort of exists in all of our lives, it will hold on to its power with its last breath. And I I learned a lot about that working in domestic violence services, which domestic violence is not about violence. Um, Rape is not about sex. They are about overpowering somebody and controlling them with threats, abuse, violence. And I I learned very early on working there that the most dangerous time for a woman, for example, to leave a partner is um, the most dangerous time for her is after she's left. So this whole this this thing we all say, why doesn't she leave? Well, actually, it's because she's more likely to be murdered when she's left, because if control is taken away from a powerful structure, it will act very erratically and dangerously uh, when it feels that its power is being lost. And so some of the things that you see on Twitter, the backlash that I get, the backlash that you you might have got, it is because the feeling of any sort of progress, the idea of progressing forward for different groups in society instead of just thinking that we can progress and all be at the same level, for some people that feels like it's being taken, their power diminishes. And so they will kick out and they will fight and they will, they will have terrible backlash. 
Um, so, but I, I mean, I'm absolutely stunned and I definitely could be guilty of this, of when somebody came, if somebody came to me and challenged me on the way that I did something, if I was panicked and thought, oh God, you know, I could lose my job if this person said that, you could see how quickly you could go to being like, how can I undermine your argument? Rather than how shall I face what you're saying and see whether you're right, you might not be right, but it's it's very, very, it's pernicious and we're all part of that structure. We're all, we'll all ta- have a place in the hierarchy and we'll all try and keep our place. One of the words you use, Jess, in the book is gaslighting. And it's a word yeah. that's, I don't know, burst onto the scene in the last yeah. ago or so. Mm. And, and an example of that, I think, is something that I've experienced when I was on LBC was if, if I was calling out racism, you'd get the racists complaining that you were using the word racist and say, oh, he's just going to use the word racist. He's just going to use the word racist again. That but, all the time. A racist try to convince you in the act of being racist that they're not being racist. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely classic gaslighting. So I will now temper some of my language about how I speak about sexism because people will roll their eyes and be like, oh, she's playing the woman card thing again. And it's just like, I am playing the woman card because women are being murdered in their homes. So consider it played. But yeah, you will start. It is. It happens to me just as much as it happens happens to people with far less power than me is I think okay how am I going to get around these minds and inevitably then you start to censor yourself you start to lose so and that was what they wanted that was what those people saying those things wanted they wanted you to second guess yourself because then you will out of the three times you were going to do something like that again you'll only do it one time and that is just and when you try and explain something like that to somebody who hasn't experienced it it's like if you try and explain racism to somebody who hasn't experienced it or sexism it is really hard when you get you'll start to feel emotions about it and like sometimes my husband who is literally you know wokey mcwokeyson and you know he's so feminist it's untrue but sometimes when I'm trying to explain something to him and I've got cross and I'm getting emotional about it he will feel attacked as a man and he was like well you know it's not all men aren't like that and I'm like but I'm not talking about you why would you assume that I was talking about you and you start to lose like when you try and explain a dream you start to lose your ability to explain why this thing is bad because you've got all these voices saying you shouldn't say racist you shouldn't say and it it works it's really pernicious gaslighting works that's why people do it what we're talking about here is pushback and another word that you you use and backlash Mm -hmm. and I suppose another example of that is, you know, is PC gone mad? The expression PC itself is almost invented, was invented by people who wanted the established structures to remain in place. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, this idea, what I, you know, the, and it's, it's, it's gone even further now with this idea of people like Nigel Farage being anti-establishment or Dominic Cummings being anti I mean, he literally works at number 10 Downing Street. He's probably got like 19 different secretaries. You know, I just, the idea that, you know, my plasterers, and that's I don't, this is what I'm going to blame my backdrop on, is my house is being almost completely replastered at the moment. My, my it, plasterers. It, 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 it at least gives us a sense of being on stage. Because yeah, that's it. The curtains to be pulled aside. Falling down velvet curtains. Um, my pla- For my plasterers to look at Dominic Cummings and say, well, you know, he's fine. 
fighting the establishment. I just think he wouldn't give a shit about you, mate. He wouldn't give a shit. Uh, some of them were talking earlier about how or in what way Hillary Clinton was corrupt. And I was a bit like, I mean, it's old news. I'm stunned that this has come up today while we're plastering. Um, but it just, I find that to be just the whole thing. It's, it feels a little bit like, yeah, we've gone far too far one way. But yeah, the idea when people say, oh, that's just political correctness I just what I hear is not being an arsehole I, I want to come back to the characters in the book some of whom, some of whom are everyday some of whom are high profile people like you like, like Tom Watson and Doreen Lawrence and others but I, I just want to explore this thought which is that there's a, a, a difficult line that someone like you has to tread and someone like me when I was presenting my shows is, and it's how much space to give someone who does disagree very strongly with you mm. and how much space to give someone who, who, who goes beyond just disagreeing and actually is peddling really nasty stuff do you give them the oxygen to have their say so that they feel heard and that they, you don't know, just cut them off on the radio or in, or in your case swear at them or whatever it is yeah. that's one thought and, and you know and, and that leads into whether you think that we should have no platforming or not where you draw the line on that mm. okay so how much space I think that we, we all exist in this system together and if we don't try and find and we should also not be entirely certain that we are right um, I think that that sort of level of certainty is something that exists in lots of places where I like to be challenged I like my viewpoint to be challenged and there's no reason why that has to be done with racism aggression sexism or any of that but when if it was do you still give airtime to those people and I think if you don't I think if, if I didn't with my constituents for example and just said right I don't want your vote I don't just not do it because this would be you know potentially uh, difficult electorally I don't think that I would bring anybody along with me I don't want to just talk to the people who agree with me I'm not interested in in just feeling good that I'm right about things I'm interested in leading people to a position changing hearts and minds and changing my own mind about things as well and so I look I think that we do have to we I, I ha- and I have to work with people I don't like all the time um, and actually that's not true I don't I tend not to work very well with people I don't like I work with people I don't agree with all the time I like quite a lot of them you know there's some members of the the Democratic Unionist Party uh, Northern Ireland who I think are absolutely lovely and then we will stand in a debate on abortion where they say things like do you uh, you know women just use abortion as contraception to which I intervened and said do you think I've only had sex for times like it's like a ridiculous thing to say and I can challenge them quite firmly and be a bit like you know taking the piss as well at the same time as still wishing to work with them to achieve other things so I'm fine with that um no platforming look I don't think that certain people should uh, I I wouldn't want to see I wouldn't want for example somebody from the BNP or Britain First or whatever going and speaking at my kids school I, I can't I can't pretend otherwise I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want David Icke anywhere near my city, let alone over the minds of young people who he could influence. I, I don't want that. I wouldn't want them watching it on YouTube. I don't want them seeing it in spaces either. However, I went to university with the youth leader of the British National Party, a bloke called Mark Collett. And there was a big debate about this in our students' union. I think it was the only time I actually ever went in the students' union. I wasn't really a joiner in her. But I went along to this debate uh, and he'd had at the time 
became a documentary film made about him uh, where they were following him around. And we had this should he be allowed a platform debate. And this young Asian bloke who was from Birmingham as well stood at the front and said, look, I, I hate this man. I don't agree with him, blah, blah, blah. I think he's got a right to come here and say what he thinks so that we can decimate it with our arguments. And I changed my mind on that day. I was, I was like, okay, no, I don't want him anywhere near me. I was like properly strident. And then I was like, no, actually, I sort of agree with this bloke. So, so whilst I, I do think that there are some people who are beyond the pale, I think if we can't discuss ideas and, and be in a room with people we don't agree with, I don't know who the people who think that are. I don't know what their families are like. Because my family have never agreed on anything. From the morning to the evening, I don't agree with myself. And I just worry that sort of, certainly on the left of politics sometimes, we've become intolerant. Take Boris Johnson. I was going to ask you how easy it is to get on with people across the aisle. John McCain was in America was famously good at that. Mm-hmm. You have absolutely laid into the Prime Minister in the House, in the Chamber. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've really gone for it to the point where you, you almost appear like you're about to well up. You're yeah. so angry and, so, and, and I feel so strongly about it. How do you get on with him in, in the corridors of power, literally, behind the scenes? Like Because there are a lot of people who follow you. You've got over 400,000 Twitter followers. A lot of people who follow you, Jess, who despise the man and, I, I would, and think that every, we should hate him and that he can't be forgiven for some of the things he said or yeah. done. I mean, take, take just quickly, for example, the appalling thing he said about some Muslim women who wear the hijab, which was, to my mind, calculated in a really nasty way, hiding behind the fig leaf of saying in his telegraph column that they should be able to wear it, but they look like it. I mean, it was, I'm not even going to say what it because it's so destructive. How, does, how do you then relate to that person behind the scenes? Because I'm with you. I think we need to have conversation. We need to keep things going and we, we should be civil with each other. But like, how do you get on with someone like Boris Johnson? I mean, it cha- it's changeable is the honest answer. It, it's, not, it's not a constant. And I don't, for, the thing is, the first thing is I don't forgive him for those comments. I might forgive him for those comments if he owned up to his motivation for making them which was shock he wanted he, he got what he wanted uh, shock and like you know sort of like uh, a bump in the polls of people who aren't that keen on Muslim people so you know he, he, he got what he wanted but I, I would forgive him if he was honest about that or if he did actually I don't even really care about the column if he did something like uh, took an action as the Prime Minister that palpably made Muslim women's lives better and did you know had a proper decent conversation that wasn't rooted in right wing shock jockism if he actually wanted to have a conversation about some of the things that we could do that would make Muslim women's lives easier then I would forgive him um, is the truth but I, I, I don't forgive him for that but I do have to work with him and he holds all the cards he is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom so I need him to be either scared or charmed by me and if you just spend all your time hectoring him you might I mean, to be fair I do hector him quite a lot <laughs> <laughs> in the corridors I hector him quite a lot and, and specifically around the Muslim thing I hectored him in the corridors because he was coming to Birmingham and I just said I, I hope the women of Birmingham give you the exact welcome that you deserve and that is that you are not welcome please don't go out and about don't go go around because we you know we don't want that sort of attitude and I see him you know I, I, to be fair I'm a fairly informal person I will sort of take the piss out of almost everybody I bump into in the corridors I remember one time Theresa May we were going in to vote and I was walking like to 
could get there quickly. And like the people in front of me all just stopped suddenly and I didn't know why so that Theresa May could walk past. But I hadn't seen Theresa May. And even if I had, I can walk near her. Like not now, obviously, but this was before COVID. And they were like, oh, sorry, Prime Minister. And all started looking at the ground and I just walked alongside her. I said, oh, hi, Theresa, how are you? And all these Tory MPs looked at me like, you can't walk with the Prime Minister. I was just like, because I can walk with the Prime Minister. She's just a human being. She's perfectly reasonable and actually much nicer in person than she comes across on television. Um, but yeah, with Boris Johnson, I have on occasion, I, I don't know him well. I have on occasion had sort of like laughed and joked with him about other things. I don't know him. I don't know him particularly well. You know, he would never heck to me. And in fact, he's quite a shy person. So he sort of looks down at the ground when you walk past. He's not that bold, brassy person that he pretends to be. I don't know why he does that. He's, I like the person who looks at the ground better. They're much less trouble. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to some of the people in the book, because you, you talked to an incredibly brave Maltese journalist who lost her life in a bomb. You talked mm. to one of the Grenfell Tower survivors. Mm. You talked to someone who stood up to Harvey Weinstein before many other people were standing up to him. And one of the things you say is that they none of these people would, would see themselves as brave, but if they were to see what they'd done in someone else, they'd immediately and instinctively call it brave. Okay. Why, why, why is it that that sort of modesty unites people, who often unites people who do extraordinary things? Yeah. I, I wonder where it comes from. I think it comes from, I suppose, the hierarchies that we're given as children. Uh, like my nan always used to say to me, you know, the, the worst thing a person can do is have a bub on themselves. Like, you know, to think a lot of yourself. And usually the people who did those things, their motivations were not to appear brave, probably in their quiet moments. They feel proud of themselves for some of the things they did. But it diverts from the cause if it in any way reflects on them as an individual. But also just sort of like, you know, sort of a British thing, isn't it, of shrugging off praise. We're terrible at accepting praise as a, a nation. Uh, um, in fact, I think we could be much much better at that and I think that the Americans could tone it down a bit. I'll ask you about one of the, the tools with which power entrenches power non-disclosure agreements because mm-hmm. they seem to me to be really pernicious and the, and the enemy of trying to make change happen. I mean there's a really pernicious thing that is happening currently that I'd say I thought that non-disclosure agreements uh, which are literally the symbolism of power and money you can't get one unless you have both power, money, lawyered up to the so you know there are there are people who non-disclosure who can get non-disclosure agreements and there are people who have to sign them and they are two very very different groups of people it is a very it is a very stark like the mexican america border of you know some people matter and some people don't so they are but i i have seen an even more pernicious thing that has started to happen post me too so a lot of the non-disclosure agreements that harvey weinstein had literally disallowed people from seeking medical advice 
speak, seeking counselling, even whether where even in cases of criminality, speaking to the police, um, which is completely illegal and unethical, and has been pointed out to to, to be the case since. Um, but what I have started to see now, even worse, is women who have spoken up about their rape, their domestic abuse, um, abuses that they had suffered at work, even where the court cases have found in their favour or civil cases are found in their favour or employment cases are found in their favour that when they speak up about it just like writing a tweet or putting on Facebook my ex-husband's tried to strangle me they're being slapped with cease and desist lawsuits and I'm seeing this growing much more that the the idea that people the power sort of shifted in the me too movement where people wouldn't be silenced anymore and they were going to speak up and the speaking up became the powerful thing that the power shifted from the abusive power players to the people who were willing to speak up and in that shift there had to be a pullback and i i've handled recently about six or seven cases of really big where lawsuits have been filed against people who who's convicted rapist or convicted domestic abuser I said, if you talk about this in a public forum, even though there's court records and everything, if you say it, I'm going to sue you for defamation. That, that is the silencing tools. We've got to do something if our laws, which are great and treasured, are being used to silence people and keep people abused and exploited. There's got to be, there's got to be a way around that. It cannot go on. Something also just that you say is that if something doesn't sit right, if it doesn't feel right, mm. it probably isn't. Yeah, and and. and most people know that I think that I, I sort of wrote that in the book after um, speaking to Zelda Perkins who stood up to Harvey Weinstein because she stood up to Harvey Weinstein on behalf of her assistant who um, alleged that he had attempted to rape her and she then even after years of fighting the legal battles being silenced losing her job being put out into the wilderness losing her career even when, when she was finally in front of our committee with her non-disclosure agreement which she got to see for the first time since she'd signed it she wasn't allowed to have a copy uh, because obviously it was unethical and she sat there with it for the first time when I interviewed her she said you know what when I look back he of course he sexually harassed me too but I never I I just thought oh it's just one of those things it's just you know he's oh you know he's inviting me up here or, or he'll sit in just his boxes when we're in meetings which seems unusual but if you're in hotel suites a lot I suppose that could happen I can't say that in parliament anyone ever does that but um that she hadn't realized and lots of people have this niggling feeling that something isn't right and it's giving yourself permission to think this isn't one of those things it's not my job to as a barmaid to have people touch my ass as I go around glass collecting that is that isn't my that isn't part of my job and it never should be but people people need permission often to act on those things they need to say it out loud and have someone else say you're right that isn't right I'll give you an example that maybe you can help me with okay so and then they're, they're two contrasting examples wrapped into one. I was at a rugby match at Twickenham watching England play. The referee, Nigel Owens, was gay. One of the fans behind me shouted homophobic abuse at him as I saw it. And either because they knew he was gay or they didn't know he was gay, but they were nonetheless homophobically abusing him. I found it incredibly easy to act instinctively, turn around and say, you can't speak like that in this stadium where you're going to have to leave. Yeah. The steward at halftime thanked me for intervening. The guy shut up and we moved on. But I find it harder, I think. I find it easy with homophobia and race. I think the sort of nasty 
low-level everyday sexism that so many of us, all of us, experience in some way or other. Perhaps men experience it less frequently because sexist men tend to target women when they aren't being looked at or watched or observed by other men, I I think. But so I give you a hypothetical example. I'm interviewing a guy on a Zoom event. There's a female producer and the guy says, who's the nice looking person there? It's obviously not you, Matt. Mm. And apart from the offence, obviously, (laughs) I would take from that. He's sexist because he's looking at a woman he's never met before and he's saying, you know, you're you're basically take, take, judging her on her looks. That's the stuff before an event. I don't want to lose the interview. Mm. It's also awkwardness. And you kind of, there's that, that niggling troll in your head that's also saying, oh, don't be so PC because they, they infect yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got your yeah. earworm. Well, how, how do you deal with those sorts of very, very commonplace everyday situations where you don't go over the top, but yeah. you hold the person gently to account? Yeah, you don't. I mean, the, the thing is, is you can hold people gently to account. And humour is an incredibly important. So I, I use humour all the time, all the time when I'm talking to somebody I don't agree with. And sometimes as well, it gets over the nervousness and the anxiety. Uh, like, you know, because, and it's the way people get away with sexism is, I was only joking. Um, and so you can use that and you can definitely use that to your advantage. Uh, and just be like, oh, you, you know, take the piss out of him. Just like, uh, you know, well, let's keep the conversation appropriate anyway and then move on uh, so that people... Because then actually, if you did say that and said something like, well, actually, she's the one who's done all the work and she's in charge. So, you know, who, why does it matter what she looks like? If you said something like that, he wouldn't. He wouldn't because he would feel awkward. Actually, we've got to remember, people do feel awkward when their stuff is pointed out to them. I've, I've had people say to me, I don't like the way you use this language. Could you not do it? And I have been like oh god I'm like you feel immediately awkward so I think that um you can do it and he probably wouldn't do it again actually because he he doesn't want to feel awkward either but you know I think that the where men have a really key role is pointing out the attitudes of other men not necessarily when there's women there like oh come on just sort of quit it like if people are talking about their nagging misses or or like my my in the book I wrote about uh, an incident with my husband where he had stopped like we there was a woman jogging she had her earphones in she was none the wiser to what was going on around her she ran past a, a bench with a couple of blokes on it and they started being like oh nice ass shouting at her like and she couldn't hear them she was off and I just didn't even notice because I'm so used to that environment being the case it didn't even feature with me but my sons were there and my husband stopped in his tracks turned around and went and had an absolutely massive go at them and they people are frightened of doing things like that because you hear stories about oh you know and they'll pull out a knife this, and this was in a this was in a South London park, um, and it just was not the case at all. They looked really scolded, and I I am a person who runs towards conflict, um, so not everybody is going to be like me. But I you know I, I often intervene on a bus if somebody's playing the music really loud and everybody's doing that thing like rolling their eyes and looking at each other and thinking we hate that fella with his loud music on the on the train. I turn around and say, mate, nobody likes your music. Could you turn it down, please? I go to decidedly unharmed See, I, thought, I, thought, I thought that example I thought that example you gave in the book of your, of your husband was incredibly brave but it also struck me as a, a man we have additional issues in that people might be more likely in that environment to use physical violence against you and in a way it's almost a metaphor These, that barrier that fear of violence is almost a metaphor for the fear that people are losing their job as you've already talked about like you took on a, 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 a tiny section of the Muslim population of your constituency who are protesting against the way in which kids were being taught about 
about sexuality, about the fact that you can have two mums or whatever. I say the Muslim population is not a homogenous thing. Of course, it's just that there are a few, uh, I think largely Muslim protesters who were getting very angry. And you fearlessly went up and took on one of the protesters. And, 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 I, and I suppose you must have realised that you could have been risking a degree of electoral success. So, yeah. you know, you, ha- you have, but in the end, you, ca- you usually have to do what you think is right, unless you're going to get murdered for it. You have, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, even in those circumstances, if if the threat was so large to me that I could lose my life standing up to it, that threat to my life continues to exist. People think that walking away is a neutral act. It isn't a neutral act. So if I'm scared to stand up to somebody, and I'm not saying that me standing up to them will immediately make it go away, but I'm no safer for not standing up to. If Tom, my husband hadn't stood up to that bloke in the park, those blokes in the park, who probably will now think I'll check who else is around before I shout at the next woman. At the very least, a stop in the thought process. And it was a risk, yeah. There was two of them and two of them and any one of him or three of them. And there is a risk, but not doing something, it still means that aggressive sexism existed in the park if I'd not stood up and, and maybe I'd lose my job or very unlikely in that circumstance but it, there was a bit of a worry about whether I was offending lots of people that aggression would still exist and another one of my friends said to me the good thing is Joe Jess is standing up against fascism is always popular <laughs> I, I want to know what you mean I'm bringing some questions from the Q&A but by this idea that real change doesn't really come from the top that people in that power bubble don't make that much for change when it comes to everyday people's life. In other words, it's bottom up and, and, and there's a big thrust of that in the book. Yeah, well, no, no, anything, when, I mean, people with power, when they change things, they tend to change it for their benefit. Um, so they can change things and a lot of change that we have experienced in our lifetimes and, our, you know, since for the last hundred years has come from powerful people. A lot of good change, uh, progressive change that has helped the masses has ultimately, in the end, come from the building where I work changing a law and somebody like me or like you know amazing campaigning MPs um, of many many generations have taken up a cause they didn't take it up on their own it's very very uncommon for a parliamentarian to take up a cause that is something from their own life so I have never experienced domestic violence for example and so it's not it's not something that uh, you know that's not the reason it's because other people who I met and worked with inspired me to take that on so it always comes from a group of people sitting around I I mean I'm not even joking like literally people sitting around a kitchen table being like this can't happen again let's do something about it like we've the women's movement came from just a couple of women putting a mattress down in a squat and you know the civil rights movement is a woman not getting up from a bus seat it comes from a group of people in the back of a church hall just going do you know what enough is enough and then building up to the point where eventually you have a powerful person on your side and then you can sweep to victory. I want to ask you some questions from the Q&A. Vicky says, who's the most interesting character in the House of Commons? Who's, who's the most interesting character? That is quite a good question. There's a lot of boring ones. To me, the most interesting characters are people who I would never come across in... <laughs> 
in my normal life. And I, I had, I mean, I once made a speech in the House of Commons where I said I thought I'd met posh people before I, I was elected, but I'd actually just met people who eat olives. Um, because I thought that like middle class people were like bougie and like, but then I met some really posh people. A middle class in the South is different to middle class in, in, in the Midlands of the North. So the characters, Nicholas Soames, who is no longer uh, a member of Parliament, he, he left in 2019, is one of the most interesting people I have uh, ever met because he, I mean, he's Churchill's grandson, which is the least interesting thing about him other than when I stood talking to him or sat having a cup of tea with him, you know, the idea that, you know, my granddad who was like a caretaker and his granddad was Churchill and we're here at the same table that often would make me feel like, you know, that that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, but he, he was just a fascinating character from a completely different world to me who was interested in argument uh, and sometimes he would say he was sort of famously quite sexist he used terrible sexist language and sometimes he would say things to me which I won't repeat that are were just sort of like I wouldn't tolerate it from almost anybody else but it is intent intent is the thing that I focus on when I worry about that sort of thing and if somebody's intention is to harm you it's pretty clear if somebody's intent is to make you laugh or to endear themselves to you or to take the mickey out of you in a friendly way better so Nicholas James was a brilliant character it was like a larger than life character and he was very good at diet tips because he'd lost about nine stone he used to but he mispronounced the word muller he used to say muller yogurts moolah it's also an interesting example Jess because he was fiercely anti anti Brexit whereas yeah. you might expect him to be both. And what's so interesting about the House of Commons at the moment, the politics at the moment, is that you have people on both sides of the Brexit debate, you wouldn't expect them to be, so allegiances were made across the And it's happening again with COVID. I mean, over over this this decision recently to have executive powers and Mm. whether Parliament should have oversight or not, you had Dawn Butler, I think, walking through the the same lobby as Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah, I mean, nobody would have ever thought it, would they? No, yeah, I mean, that happens... happens and that's why the characters are really interesting in parliament because uh, like i say i I find that difficult to do that sort of let's get together with people I don't like and there's lots of really likeable funny characters I mean you know I I genuinely some of the people in there are genuinely inaudible to me I cannot understand what they are saying and I should imagine they feel the same sometimes but some people are so posh that they are inaudible it's like there's a softness so that they don't enunciate anything I'm like you're going to oh you're you're not, you're, you're, you're not, you're like a commoner, mate, by comparison to these people. You're just southern. And I feel really sorry for people who are from the south. <laughs> just because it's sort of anonymous, your accent is anonymous. There's a sense of lack of identity of the home counties, except that when you ever meet anybody from the home counties, such is their desire to have a, a, like a sort of collective identity, is that they're always from somewhere in somewhere in somewhere. Like I'm, it's almost, I'm from Birmingham, whereas <laughs> Soon people have there, they'll be like, you know, I'm from Suez in Surrey, and, and, and they, they, like, they say like three things. I'm like, I'm just from Birmingham. I don't need to tell you which bit of Birmingham I'm from. But people in London uh, go like, oh, I'm from Hackney, and or or I'm, uh, you know, they'll say some London suburb as if I would know it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know the names of London suburbs, whatever. We've got to make me laugh. We've got to race through these questions. This oh, one fits into something I haven't asked you about actually. Andy says, how do you speak truth to power if power talks all? over you while you're while you're speaking and and maybe just as an appendage to that question i mean the few 
huge story today, of course, Trump getting COVID. Oh, yeah. What's going to happen in the election? The debate two or three days ago, when Trump was interrupting the whole time, I mean, Biden did a bit of Trump himself, but Trump was interrupting, interrupting, interrupting. How would you take on someone like Trump? I'd love to see you go head to head. I mean, how would you deal with it? The reality is, is what I'm going to say is not how I would deal with it. If Donald Trump treated me that way, I would, I, I would properly turn around and give him, exa- unfortunately, exactly what he wanted. I would take him down as if I was a teenage girl again. I would mean girls the shit out of him, uh, which is exactly what he would want. So that's the honest answer. Um, the answer to the question about how do you speak up if power constantly speaks over you is that sometimes you have to change the place where you do it. You have to find a different platform and a new avenue um, because if the game is being played, so political parties are brilliant for this. If you ever go to a political party meeting, the same five people will say the same five things. After I imagine if, if I were to meet, meet Keir Hardy, we'd have the same anecdotes to tell about constituency Labour Party meetings. And the way of doing things is really prescriptive. And it's the same in work. Like, well, it, we, that don't happen because we just don't do it that way. My genuine and honest advice is stop asking for permission and start apologising because like, I, will, I won't seek permission to do something. I'll apologise for doing it afterwards. And you have to make a new avenue for speaking. What Joe Biden, if I was advising Joe Biden, what Joe Biden should have done in that circumstance is totally ignore Donald Trump, completely and utterly ignore him, turn constantly to the camera and just talk to the American people about what the American people care about. Because that, when politicians end up in a spat, my, uh, my predecessor in the 2017 election did nothing but slag me off on lethal. It's literally nothing. And even people who liked him started saying to me, I wish he'd stop slagging you off. And I just kept talking about them. And constantly, whenever I'm out doing anything, I talk about them, not about me. And he just constantly talked about me. So I didn't need to bother. Biden did, and he's not here to defend himself. I hate him to. Biden... No, 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 I, I think he, I didn't actually watch it because life's too short. <laughs> Biden did try to, he did, yeah. he did try to speak to the camera. You mentioned constituency meetings, but we have something we haven't talked about just very, very briefly is the, the umbilical cord between the electorate and their representatives yeah. via the, via the, the sessions that the, 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 the surgeries that MPs hold. And that's something actually that you were impressed with Theresa May for. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. She'd, she'd constantly, she'd still be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would, Theresa May would like, you know, in Maidstone Town Hall or whatever the local civic building is where she lives, uh, would, would have a surgery like every, every month, every, every two weeks. Uh, and she would see her constituents and talk to, I think like as well, even when she was the prime minister, she, there's like a fun run in Maidstone and she would go and be like one of the stewards and she's done it for like 20 years she would put on a tabard and like be like oh this way giving people bottles of water now i'm not saying that to like massively praise that's not that's not a very praiseworthy thing that's what everybody should do it is notable in a prime minister i think but i i think that the the umbilical cord between constituent and which is dying a little bit at the moment because we can't really see our constituent uh between constituent and um uh, and politician and then what you stand up and say in the house of commons makes the british democracy and the British Parliament, not just the mother of all parliaments, but it is gold-plated and it doesn't really exist anywhere else in the world. And the world is poorer for it. Uh, yeah, it's a problem, isn't it? That you're not able to see your constituents in the same way that you would have done previously. Because partly when you get to the ministerial level and 
prime minister or level, the further you get away from the people you serve, possibly the less well you might serve them, and and the more power can start to corrupt. So quick question from from Elsie, who says, just how do you cope with never ending having to go harder? You're always having to go harder and be more, and and, and because you are a woman. Do you let it it in, or do you try to ignore it? Just briefly. Yeah, yeah, how do I cope with going harder? Um, Yeah, it's, it's tiring. It can be really, really tiring. And sometimes when you're campaigning for something or fighting and speaking up for something and you know you're going to win in the end and you just wish that everybody would stop wasting your time. Like, why must I drag you through the coals to get to an inevitable end position? I've started to feel like that a little bit uh, recently. Like, you know, we're going to get there in the end. Why must I go through these hoops? But I I actually really quite like having to push myself to be as hard as possible. Um, I find the adrenaline intoxicating, actually. And if things are easy, I would bore very, very, very quickly. Elkie says, do you, it's a good question, is, do you have moments of weakness? And if so, how do you restore your power? I have moments of weakness all the time at the moment. Like, it's, it feels like months of weakness because the world's still a bit weird. Uh, how do I restore my power? Genuinely, the genuine answer to that question is the people who are around me who I love. I live in the community that I have lived in all my life. I married a boy from down the road and... Uh, my friends are people I've been friends with since childhood and they're not at all interested in politics my friend Amy who uh, once when I went on question time for the first time she asked me did I win because she thought I was on mastermind (laughs) to which I said I I think I sort of won but um, they ground me constantly and make me not have too much of a bub on myself but my constituents just sitting for a day with my constituents will both make me laugh till I can't cry but also just makes me really really cross so anyone who ever needs any like you know boosting and feeling powerful on a Friday come and shadow me in my office because you will feel both cross and loved by the end of the day I know you've got to go and get your, your curry I'm going to go for a curry with my girlfriends now only five of them I hasten to add no more you spoke about motivation earlier. How do you make sure that not get, you don't get a bob on yourself, to use what I imagine is a Midlands expression that I've heard you twice? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter followers, fame, you have, you have power to an extent, and all those things. How do you make sure that your motivation remains, not playing to the echo chamber, but helping the people that you want to serve? I mean, it's really hard. It's the truth. And sometimes I slip up and sometimes I uh, have a massive ego and I'm selfish and, you know, enjoy the attention. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But ultimately if you keep yourself rooted in the community that you serve they will wipe it off you very very quickly also my husband is literally one of the most sort of brutally honest you know he's such a critic of me uh, he's never read any of my books he's not particularly interested he said to me i tell you which book you should write you should write a book that says jess take yourself down a peg or two and so my husband was very supportive of me and most in a sort of quiet way will keep me constantly not thinking i'm too big for my boots very final question from Stephen: what's the most influential thing you have done whilst being an mb so i guess how do you feel you have best used your power i have best used my my power to change laws that mean thinks the situation for victims of domestic violence has progressed and improved uh, since I was a member of parliament so uh, one particular law that I could pick on is that I uh, campaigned and for and in fact went to parliament to make uh, a statutory duty for local authorities to have to provide refuge accommodation and currently in the law that they don't have to and the day that the minister rang me to tell me that they were going to make it 
the law that refuge had to be provided. Bear in mind, the only other things that exist in law are that they have to collect your bins and that they have to provide children and adult services. So, you know, women are as important as the bins now, uh, which feels quite influential. But when she rang me to tell me, it's Tory minister on the phone to me, and she just said, you've done it, Jess. We're going to do it. We're going to put it into law. I felt like I could cartwheel at the same time as crying, at the same time as like popping champagne corks. And it will genuinely affect thousands into the future, millions of people's lives. And that feels uh, particularly influential. If in Westminster, in the House of Commons, you will never hear a budget statement again, I don't think, whilst I'm in the House of Commons, where they don't mention violence against women and girls and domestic violence because I pointed it out the first year I was there that they didn't mention it or give any money and every year since it's been mentioned. Jess you you are you <laughs> you definitely are brave you you're oh thanks we haven't mentioned the panic alarm and all that sort of stuff but you are you really are brave and you're an inspiration to lots and lots and lots of people and, and I, I I for one absolutely love talking oh, to you. It's my pleasure honestly thanks for having me. Don't forget everybody <laughs> if you haven't already got it Truth to Power is available in paperback it's a really good read got some incredibly powerful and moving examples thank you for joining us everybody do stay do stay well and jess have a brilliant weekend take care this week's show starred jess phillips and was presented by matthew stadlin it was produced by me vas christodoulou and edited by john doughty every night how to academy hosts live streams with some of the world's most exciting people far more than we can possibly put into this weekly show So if you're enjoying the series, please do visit us at howtoacademy.com and follow us on your social media of choice to find out who we've got coming up. Ai Weiwei, Ralph Steadman and Caitlin Moran are just a few of the highlights in a truly packed autumn programme. Thanks for listening.